Whether you're a writer of books or songs or a reader of books and a listener to songs, you're going to really enjoy these interviews with some of our leading songwriters and authors. I certainly enjoyed conducting them. My name is Sophie Green and I am your host. Catherine Therese is an award-winning writer, designer and educator who has had a diverse career in Europe and Australia where she has lived, worked and published widely across the arts. Her memoir, The Weight of Silence, was a The Age and Sydney Morning Herald Book of the Year and finalist in the National Biography and Arbia Awards. In April this year, she released a novel, Things She Would Have Said Herself. We're going to talk about that, maybe some memoir writing, a few things. Hi, Catherine. Fabulous. Hi, Sophie. How are you? I'm great and really looking forward to talking to you because you have written across fiction and nonfiction and you work in the arts. I'm sure you have a few very interesting things to say. I'm going to first ask you about things she would have said herself. Where did the idea come from? Oh, gosh, uh, it all started. Actually, the book is about a 78-year-old woman who's, he's, who's an irascible matriarch of a huge bonkers family. Um, she will go to any length and breadth to ignore her own and her children's pain. And the book's deeply about that. Um, it set, begins and ends in 2013. Um, I had to place it that year because there was another thing that would get on Leslie Bird's goat. She's a woman with a lot of bugbears. And 2013 was the year we had three prime ministers. <laughs> Do you remember that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Ra, uh, Gillard, Rudd, Abbott. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, it's a book about um, all the things that get on her goat. She, Leslie Bird was born in the 1930s and she's inherited the doctrines and the orthodoxies of that time with absolutely no self-awareness. She's, mm -hmm. uh, she's someone who carries a can of graphite powder in her pocket to ease squeaky door hinges completely unaware that she's the most unhinged member of her family. She dubs her children. If she hears a word she doesn't like, she she thinks that um, you take the word away and the meaning goes away and we can all just start again. She lives deeply in denial and she's married to a fairly hapless chap, Wallace Bird, and the book actually, when you said the, the question, to answer your question, Sophie, where did the idea come from? Wallace Bird was the first character that okay. um, sounds like a cliche, but I had a dream about a little boy um, who was standing in a field of wheat and wheat was all he could see. Wheat was his horizon and it wasn't lost on me. I started, this came to me uh, in the aftermath of writing memoir. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think there's a connection between, there's this beautiful thing that, um, Anne Michaels says, one of my favourite authors, about one book, when you finish a book, it washes you up on the shore of the next. And right. I think whilst the memoir was, it was also about family, it was about my family, it was about me having my first child at 16, and I broke a really um, long-standing family secret about my father's alcoholism, and the family was in a really strange stage mm -hmm. of grief and understanding and misunderstanding and you know it's it's a whole other conversation to have um about the consequences of publishing memoir right and wallace bird surfacing in the aftermath of the memoir i think was i think you can only ever look back um you keep all those unconscious doors locked while you're writing mm -hmm. but um i think that wallace bird was an emblem of my parents' generation. He was a, a way in for me to try and understand them and others like them, born in the 30s in the Depression. In my dad's case, he inherited the Depression as a temperament and mm -hmm. poor old Wallace Bird does as well. And uh, I placed him in Grenfell um, in the Riverina because I grew up obsessed, still am, read poetry every day with Henry Lawson. Um, and Lawson was born in Grenfell, and there was something about the syntax, the uh, the, the language. Um, I felt like I'd found my people um, when I was reading. I didn't really understand what I was reading, reading Lawson, but there was a sadness. There was a melancholy. He was talking about people dying of the secrets they couldn't tell, and that was I was just off from that point, that this is a place I need to understand and be in, and so... I guess it's not a coincidence that I placed this little boy in Grenfell and I just started writing scenes about him. And at one point he 
grew up <laughs> and I guess he needed a wife and then right. Leslie Bird came along and I really still can't explain her she's a very she's a composite portrait of a lot of women I have observed and loved and known and have been outraged by <laughs> and there um, my publisher said to me just before the book came out um, this is a book about a generation that are leaving us um, and they're taking their language and their stories with them and it's a generation we roll our eyes at but we're devastated when they're gone. Mm. Um, so that's my intention. Um, they're fairly disagreeable people, difficult people. I'm hell-bent on trying to understand anybody that's other to me. I think it's really easy to be benevolent and loving towards the people that mirror our own values. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, yeah, I'm trying to do the opposite, trying to understand people that are very different from my own way of being. I have a few questions that have come out for what you've just said, but I'll start with the last part, which is I actually already had a question saying that, um, or a comment more that it seems to me you're tr you write from a place of trying to understand the human condition and of great compassion for people in general, that you, Thanks. like, you're an equal opportunity compassionate <laughs> person, if that makes do sense. You know, um, do you know something? Probably I just, certitude really bothers me, Sophie. Mm -hmm. um, I get really uncomfortable uh, when people are so, when, when anyone's certain about anything, um, I gravitate towards, I guess, people who have a lot of space around them to accommodate the ideas of others. And I think as I get older, particularly in this time where, you know, discourse can be so reductive, um, there's a lot of noise and people are I don't know I feel as if we're living in an age where people are having tantrums when they come up against opinions or experiences that are different to their own and I I caught difference I think mm -hmm. I'm attracted to it I'm really um compelled to understand others and I love ambiguity um I really love people who live in a way that kind of almost make an art of ambiguity there's space for other opinions and ideas um, yeah, and, and compassion. I mean, that's that's a beautiful word that you used. And when you think about the etymology, what it actually means, compassion is to suffer with. Mm. And I'm asking the readers to suffer along <laughs> with this family mm -hmm. with the goal to hopefully, perhaps, because um, reading is, is an act of empathy in itself. Mm -hmm. When we read somebody else, we're joining a conversation. And I used to think it was a two-way conversation you know, half you, half me. Mm -hmm. but now I think someone said to me the other day, oh, no, it's not. It's it's more than that. Um, it's it's a part me, part you, and part the times we're living in. The orthodoxies right. of the time we're living in now that are telling us how to read, what we should read. I've had people say to me, why would you write about these kind of people? Right. And I kind of know what they mean, but I feel like we need... There's such a hierarchy in literature as to who gets written about and what mm. sort of, I mean, is there or isn't there? Because I read really widely and I can think of hundreds of books that are that are really talking about very ordinary lives and the extraordinary moments in those ordinary lives. So I've just, I haven't quite finished George Saunders' book, A, uh, A Swim in the Pond in the Rain. Have you read mm. that? So I haven't, no. Oh, it's Fabulous. He's at, um, George has been teaching at Syrac Syracuse. Is, is that the way you pronounce it? I think mm -hmm. university. And in the opening of his book, he's talking to his students. Apparently, you know, there's thousands of people that apply and he only takes six students a year. And the course that he teaches is based on his favourite, um, that he's writing about in this book at least, is six of his favourite Russian essays. And so you get the essay and then you, you get a page of the essay and then the following page is an examination of how you read that page. So in right. essence, an examination of how closely you're leaning into the text. Mm -hmm. What are you thinking? How are you responding? What's the author saying, not saying? And often it's what's in the slippage between the words, I think, and the sentences, which is where the deep meaning lies. Mm -hmm. And um, George is questioned by his students as to, you know, who should we be writing about? And he says to them, every human life contains the possibility, all the possibilities for good and evil. 
even the most humble life. You yeah. know, look around you. You don't have to look far to, to actually let go of judgment and just look at the people around you. And, yeah, I guess I've grown up around people <laughs> like the birds, yeah. have witnessed them at close quarters and they are not my family. Um, Leslie and Wallace Bird have their own pains and secrets and trajectories, but they, there's echoes, you know, they're, they're sort of avatars for my concerns. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You asked if there's a hierarchy of who gets written about. I think that difficult women often yeah. don't get written about because people push back against that. And I have had that experience where I've written characters who are difficult, yes. not necessarily sympathetic and, and yeah. had some pushback from um, sometimes from readers. Um, and I think in making Leslie Bird, in Leslie Bird being difficult, because you didn't yeah. make her anyway, she came to you. Um, that's it's it's always interesting because we have women as villains yes. that's allowed, yeah. but women who are not uh, nice. Yes, um, yeah. I mean you can be evil, but yeah. still, but but not nice is a different kind of evil. I think it's so interesting, isn't it? I had someone say to me the other day, um, you know, oh, she's so shocking, and I thought, well, and I I had to come back and say, tell me about what is so shocking about her to you because I think there's a certain level of, um, you know, there, there is, the, it, it sort of speaks to how do we locate the truth in this situation and abandon our expectations of what a mother should be, um, yeah. what a woman should be. I mean, she's really disappointed. She, she bought all those doctrines of her time that motherhood and marriage would bring her happiness and it's brought her great loss and disappointment. Mm -hmm. um as a you know as a mother myself I've, I've got three children and I can't really I couldn't imagine how someone could feel that way towards their children and that was one of the things that really drew me into her to try to inhabit um that psychological space what would it be like to feel demeaned by your children yeah yeah um, but you're right it's very very provocative isn't it to have you know, she hasn't killed anybody. Yeah. She does a lot of she does a lot of tricky things. Um, she's she's very complex, um, but she's deeply. Someone said to me the other day, the book reminded them of um, Mrs. Dalloway, but with right. poo. <laughs> Mrs. Dalloway with lots of poo. <laughs> <laughs> and I I said to them, yeah, actually, I'll take that because yeah, there is a lot of um, there's a lot of soiling in the book. Um, mm -hmm. And as Leslie Bird would say, because the children aren't allowed to say the word poo, she makes them change it to the word pain. And there's right. a lot of pain in this book. And I've only mm -hmm. just come to realise that my, uh, perhaps there's so much, um, so much pain in the book because of that thing of things she would have said as a writer, I, it's boiling up in me to, to try to say the things that she wouldn't mm -hmm. say herself. And yeah. so I'm looking at, looking at all the the ugly messy stuff that happens and especially I think what I'm finding even though it's only early days Sophie with the book out people are quite terrified of all that messy stuff that resides inside us you know the yeah. the molten lava the stuff that's not politically correct that can't be tamed that's wild and chaotic and it's not nice yeah in other words you, yeah and the great challenge was to allow these people to say what they were thinking and get out of the road of judging them. Yeah. And one of the things when I just, it's just come to me now when you said before about what was the inspiration, Muriel Rukeyser is one of my favourite writers and she has this beautiful, well, there's a quote that's attributed to her that is what would happen if one woman told the truth of her life, mm -hmm. the world would split open. And so there's a lot of worlds splitting open in this book. And it's, it, was, it was terrifying to write. And it's actually quite, I didn't think I was as fearful this time, but I am because you have to rely on other people's um, curiosity mm -hmm. uh, and engagement with their own empathy to want to understand a family like this and people like this. And when I use the word understanding, I think it's really important to mention that understanding doesn't mean forgiveness. Yeah. You know, we're not condoning these actions. We're not encouraging them where my hope is that understanding allows us to 
um, get along a little bit better, to to live mm -hmm. more harmoniously within the realms of people that think differently to us. And I think context is critical always. Yeah. Um, you know, and nuance. Um, I just we all need more shade, more nuance, because then when when you're in possession of those things, you can't adhere to one um ideological commitment i guess you you can you leave yourself open mm -hmm. yeah um and I, I when you were speaking earlier i did note down some things as i said i questions were coming out of that so one of them was you said oh perhaps it's a cliche but wallace came to you in a dream i don't know that it is a cliche to dream oh. a character because i always find it extraordinary when people remember things that oh, come to really? them in dreams so are you someone who tends to document dreams or document ideas from dreams or was that just a particularly significant Dream. Um, yeah, um, I, a bit of both, I think, Sophie. Um, that I've certainly had dreams in my life that were, um, uh, they just have a quality that's, um, that separates them from the usual kind of regurgitating dreams where you sort of wake up and think, oh, yeah, that, that all makes sense. I was, you know, I, ha I have observed those things and I can see how my mind is, has connected them. But this was, it it was so I, I've only had a handful of them in my life and this was one of those where this and the physicality of this chap mm -hmm. um and actually it's they were both Leslie and Bird came to me very physically when I realized who he was this little boy as he was getting older and the kind of woman actually the first thing that came to me with Leslie Bird were her ankles and her calves <laughs> I knew she'd have a big firm bottom and always be wearing steppings, but I she had beautiful ankles and calves, and so right. she, I needed to to get her to move around, and I actually cast her as a as a church organist, right, and then became very obsessed with, um, which might lead us into some of the musical stuff that um, we might talk about later, because I found myself ridiculously obsessed with organ music while I was writing the book <laughs> I think there's only like one or two mentions of it in the book but isn't it funny those preoccupations um, mm. that we develop alongside our obsessions and yeah. I can see now that it, it had something to do with rhythm rhythm's really important to me yeah, well, I was actually uh, I was actually about to say that because when you were talking about poetry and Henry Lawson, um, I just made a note uh, because the rhythm of your language, there is so much musicality in the way you write. And so when you were talking about reading a lot of Lawson and now talking about rhythm in writing, because it's important to me as a writer to have rhythm, yeah. but it's so present in your writing and it's this way of signifying to the reader what's going on I think you know shifting tempos but also a way of, of drawing us in so that we feel like we're inside this this beat that's going on so for you when you're writing initially is that there is that sense of rhythm there or is it something that you only see when you're going back over it no it's I can't get anywhere until I find the rhythm the rhythm really I mean Wallace is an exception because there was such a sense of a physical presence and I don't know, almost like a little ghost that was mm. beside me um, that I needed to investigate um, and love and understand. And um, the others' characters didn't come like that. They, they're metaphors. They're metaphors for all of the ways I wanted to challenge the main characters. You know, the children that I've introduced have different characteristics, um, but rhythm always comes first for me. The words tumble to fit later. And mm -hmm. I, I'm, I mean, I've got, you know, some beautiful friends that are musicians and they, a few of them have said to me that I, when I talk about writing, it's a similar kind of composition to them. Like I actually, it's a very physical process for me when I'm, I write longhand first always. Okay. Yeah, hundreds of notebooks and really scarily, when I look back at them, I think, oh God, I've been saying the same thing for years. Like, <laughs> you know, just rewriting the same sentence. I don't know what for, but maybe to get some depth of understanding and then there's a point where it takes off and when I'm actually at the computer, I write. Um, I, it's kind of the notebooks are there and I don't really transcribe them. I just, they're there like the books I love are there on the desk as well and I something else happens. There's a that's probably where the rhythm comes from. And it's during that sort of composition. Um, right. 
yeah, lyrical. And, and I think so much when we talk about rhythm is it's the movement of your mind, right. the way that you think about things and the, the way you make connections are evident in the, the rhythm of your writing. And I've got a fairly associative way of thinking, so I, I kind of dart. <laughs> Having yeah. read me, you would probably agree. I kind of dart around and I move in and out of the different consciousnesses of the characters and mm. hopefully they've got distinct rhythms. Mm -hmm. Do they feel when you're writing, because you have great dialogue um, and I'm wondering if the characters therefore feel like they develop their own rhythms to you when you're writing that dialogue. Yeah, I guess that's where it would be most evident. Yeah, very much so. Um, it's something, you know, I don't know if we talk enough about, you know, the practice, the discipline of writing. Um, and it's something that I've worked really, really hard on. Um, I, I, for me, writing primarily feels like listening, listening, listening to your thoughts, the characters, and kind of getting out of the way of what you think about things to find out what you don't know. And that's only when the unconscious can play, um, which is a bit like the dream state. I really feel like I'm not present when I'm, when I, you know, I'm talking about sort of early drafts when characters are coming into formation. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm walking around, you know, um, with Leslie Bird's gait and ankles and going to lunchtime recitals at St Andrews in Macquarie Street in Sydney. It's so fantastic. They're free. They're on every Thursday and you can just sit up the back and be really quiet and listen and the physicality of all of that. There was something, I only actually wrote one scene about her sitting at the organ, but it, I think I was attempting to suggest that there was something dormant and erotic and wonderful all this potential in this woman that mm -hmm. never gets realized yeah. and even if it was only in flexing her ankles yeah. at the keyboard I mean she never speaks to any of the congregation that um, at this church that she plays at for 30 years she never speaks to anyone she oh. plays the organ and she sits up the back and kind of looks at everybody from behind and judges them and you know just carries on with her small-minded thinking yeah but that's back to also you having compassion for your characters, regardless of who they are when they come to you. You you mm. saw all of that potentially in her. Yeah. And I guess writing is a way to try to find that in the characters, find find the potential, even if you know that they're not destined to manifest any of that. Yes, yes. And I, I have to say I didn't really know her. I didn't know the trajectory. Um, mm. I write scenes and I guess key for me with Leslie Bird is what happens to her when she's a little girl um, being shamed. I think she's nine years old when she's made aware she's swimming at the Macquarie River in Bathurst. Um, she holds the record for holding a holding a breath underwater and then all these kids make fun of her and about a physical ailment that she has that she's been mildly aware of, but at that point it's life-changing for her. Mm -hmm. The father um, comes to the river and with the best of intentions, tells her to cover herself up quick, smart and busy herself elsewhere. And because she's a good girl, she does. Yeah. She's, yeah. It could actually be the title of the book, cover yourself up and busy yourself elsewhere. Um, yeah. Keep yourself nice, as her mother used to say to her. Keep yourself yeah. nice. So she excels at that. And one of the things I'm really interested in is what it's like to live in a body if we think of the body as our first home, mm -hmm. what's it like to actually be disembodied for, mm. your home, for your first home, your body to be a foe, not, not a soup, but a, an yeah. enemy, yeah. you know, to be a hostile place. And she, this is a woman who's never experienced her body as a place of pleasure. She, uh, she abhors sex. She, she sees the world through this lens of she carries this fear with her all the time that something awful and ugly is going to be exposed and she does everything to cover it up and she covers up all her feelings about things with no knowledge that she's passing on all of that uh, dogma and ideology to her children, that they're absorbing all of this. And, of course, they grow up to do all sorts of wacky things um, with little awareness that, of what they've inherited and why. Yeah. 
Because, you know, girls are socialised, I think, probably even still to have that disembodiment. It's, yes. it's just that sense of our bodies are not meant to belong to us, they belong to everyone else. Everyone can comment on them. We need yes. to look a certain way in order to appease yeah. how other people think of us. Yes. It is such a common experience, which is why in being specific about Leslie's experiences, you make them universal. Uh, and I also was interested in something you said about, you know, characters who are, as she was born during the Depression, I'm actually quite conscious as well of us losing that sense of the generations who lived through wars and the Depression and uh, and how they acted out of that and made some decisions that we wouldn't necessarily understand today, which yeah. have possibly turned into intergenerational trauma. Yeah decisions Absolutely. but that is seeping out of our consciousness and I'm quite aware of trying to keep some of those characters in as well yeah I think it's and again you know we spoke before Sophie about context um, when I was doing research for the book um, I, I actually took my mum and dad uh, who were well in their 80s at this point back to I took them to Brentford when I was researching there's a, a terrible accident that happens in Wallace's childhood in the book and I wasn't familiar with Grenfell aside from I'd never placed myself there so I needed to walk the streets have a mixed grill in the pub and look at all these bandy legged old shearers and um and I mum and my parents actually from a different a different place in the Riverina um both of them spent a lot of time in Cootamundra and dad mm -hmm. was from a shearing family his mother was a shearer's cook and um, like Wallace in the book, he left school at 15, had all his teeth put out, started smoking in a trade on the same day. And what struck me so profoundly, um, there's mention of the Cowra breakout in the book. And we stopped on our way to Grenfell um, in Cowra. And mum and dad had both lived through that time. Um, dad told stories when he was, you know, about being a little boy and hearing about all the, knowing that the, um, the Japanese were being interned in Kaura. His, uh, one of his family members, a, a great uncle, was actually one of the gunners at Kaura. So there was this kind of mythology and idea in our family that there was some connection there, which, which drew me to it as well. Um, I took mum and dad to, um, there's an amazing uh, hologram exhibition. Of, it's a reenactment. It's kind of like a little... Um, oh, garage almost next to a service station <laughs> in Cowra and there's this whole dad loved it so much he's like yeah let's watch it again because he gleamed more information from that hologram than actually living through it wow. watching bodies piled up all of that because and you know and it really puts you in mind as to how information was disseminated how what they were hearing about the war um, mm -hmm. when, I, when I took them to the um, cemetery there which is magnificent for anyone who hasn't been it's it's an incredible part of our history and the you know the the unity between the Japanese and Australian governments and how the physicality of the place the gum trees circled by cherry blossoms it gives me goosebumps just remembering it and dad was absolutely astonished that any of this had taken place because he knew so little about it because Right. The, the news was kept from them. There was the occasional headline, but information was controlled. You, you didn't have a phone. You didn't have, you mm -hmm. know. So, and it's interesting that we kind of stand in judgment now of those people and their attitudes, you know, when when the Japanese surfaced in Sydney Harbour. Yeah. You know, and there were shells that went into, uh, I live in Paddington and just recently I've had a look at um, some of the properties that were damaged in Wollara nearby. And, you know, when I was born in 65, that, you know, the white Australia policy was in place. There was, they were terrified of the yellow peril. Yeah. And through ignorance, through closed lives, through parochial thinking, they didn't venture beyond pretty much the East Coast. Um, and they, th those ideas just kind of became deeply embedded. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I'm trying to, I've, I've been trying to understand that sort of bigotry, its roots its projections and mm -hmm. its consequences. So yeah. there's a whole lot of aspects like that that surface in the book. I've created children with, you know, to, to try to explore intergenerational trauma and, yeah. yeah. And, again, from a place of deep compassion and and, um, and wanting to understand the human condition, I think. Um, yeah. And I'm interested 
uh, in how, oh, I'm interested in what the differences might have been for you in between writing memoir and writing this novel. And obviously memoir, you're drawing on your own life, but even just practically, were there differences in how you went about the writing tasks for each? No, no, no. I don't think so um, in terms of my habits for writing, the way I approach it, um, except to say that I write deeply from feeling. Um, I, I just obsessed with finding words for feelings and that was a distinct difference for me between memoir and fiction that the feelings were all inside me and so the job was to articulate them when I was creating fictional characters and I think this is probably why it took a decade I almost felt like I had to become these people um, ingest them so Mm -hmm. then they were inside me and I could write about them from feeling as if they were my lived experience and it's really weird Sophie I I shared the development of the characters with mum and dad and and one of my sisters as we you know as the years were passing and in some ways I think I needed to know that I that they were freed from my biography and these characters were standing on their own and um and you know there were times where Leslie Bird was quoted in the family but that but she was being quoted as somebody else and I go no no she's not real that's Leslie Bird that's not that's my character that's not what Arnie such and such said she kind of became this presence in our lives that was it was very very strange and I think yeah as I said I think it's why it took so long because I had to write I still had to write from feeling of these characters um walk around inside them and uh, and it's funny, you know, when you publish memoir, my experience was that people say, oh, you know, it's, you're saying it's memoir, but is it really you? There's this kind of doubt that, you know, I don't know, I got questioned a lot about that, certainly not by my family um, who found the whole experience very painful, but there was never any suggestion that what I'd written about wasn't, you know, true. Mm-hmm. It's just they kind of, learned, they were all, everyone got in a really sort of landed in a good place when they could deny it existed so till we got to the point where it was like what book oh yeah (laughs) now we just move on and yeah we'll forget about that um yeah and yeah it's I I can't imagine going back to non-fiction I I'm writing again now and there's a lot of space between the words I think Mm -hmm. it could be poetry that's surfacing now right I'm not sure just you talking about ingesting your characters um, because, you know, you're writing memoir, you can't let yourself go. You can't de-ingest yes. yourself. I'm wondering yes. if you have let go of the birds yeah. or if you ever will, if you, if you haven't yet. Um, yeah, that's a really generous, beautiful question because it just, you know, shows how deeply you're calibrated as a writer, Sophie, to ask that because they do. Like my husband said to me just recently, I said to him, well, you know, it's not nothing to walk around, you know, like inside the body of a, you know, 78 year old cranky woman for all these years. And he said, yeah, tell me about it. Like next time, could you write a book about a woman who wants to have sex with us but all the time? <laughs> and I, I do, you kind of go a bit mad, I think, um, when you're doing this sort of thing. Um, sorry, what was your question, Sophia? It was whether you whether you feel that you'll be able to let, or if if you can let them go once they're in you. Yeah. I mean, I, I tend to think characters do hang around forever, but just yeah. from a pure a place of pure practicality for you to function yes. in the world as Catherine. Yeah, I think um, no, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's it's really interesting the time lapse between. It's quite a challenge actually, talk, even talking about the book because I'm so wary of making fiction of the fiction. Right. You know, I, I, I kind of wish that because the part of me that wrote the book is not this part. It's mm-hmm. not me. I know what I think about things. I don't know what I think about things when I'm writing. It surprises mm-hmm. me, which is part of why I do it, I guess. Um, but there's a lapse of a couple of years between me handing the manuscript in and it being published. Mm-hmm. So my understanding of my intentions with the book and all of those things uh, have changed. And I didn't know, without any spoilers or anything for the book, I didn't know how it was going to end. Mm-hmm. I really didn't know. Um, it surprised me. Um, yeah. And, yeah. It's a strange fracture. Part of them will always be <laughs> with me because in some ways too, it feels like 
all the characters in me and all of them aren't me. And if those, yeah. that duality can exist, you know, that, that like your, your, your ideas, there's, there's a line in the book where someone suggests to Leslie Bird she's having an awful thought about something and it's suggested to her that she's not her thoughts. And mm-hmm. she says, you know, and someone says, oh, you should write them down on a piece of paper and put set them on fire and then they'll be gone. And she thinks to herself, no, I definitely have my thoughts. <laughs> and the whole world would ignite if it really knew what women were thinking. Yeah. And it's funny, people who, you know, in my close circle who know me have sort of, you know, oh, is that such and such? And, you know, people mm-hmm. who know me and my world. And it's really funny. There are actually a couple of characters who are, kind of avatars for a couple of people that I know and they are the people who you know because they don't have self-awareness they don't recognize them (laughs) at all and it's funny when people try to cast themselves as other characters which is endlessly fascinating in itself it is yes I have had that happen on on occasion and it's so and again it's the people who ask about that person is completely not you. Like it's just, in fact, no character is you. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, and, and it is that, isn't it? You know, I got asked the other day about loss. You know, there's a loss of a child in this book that's, that has a profound impact on Leslie Bird's development. And, you know, I was asked, you know, how, and, and this is by a woman who is a journalist, but she's also, uh, she was a doctor in emergency and she's, she wanted to talk to me about writing a scene about losing a child. And she said, I'm so sorry for your loss. And I said, no, I, no, it hasn't happened to me, but I, it happened to somebody when I had my son, when I was 16, there was a woman um, who was brought into the ward, very heavily pregnant and she was induced. Mm -hmm. Um, And the night before she went in to be induced, I spent the night with her, with my son, you know, brand new, um, and the nurses asked if she could hold him and as it transpired she never came back from giving birth she was moved to the general ward and a couple of days later I found out through a pink lady you know serving tea and biscuits she was taking this woman's clothes out of the wardrobe and she said baby born blue right and I he was born two days after my son so for the last who's just turned 40 so for the last 40 years I sort of say a prayer and light a candle for that little baby that never made it um, Mm. out into the world and that her loss I don't know I've carried it with me alongside Mm -hmm. my son all these years and if I you know it's so weird isn't it when you start unpicking these obsessions of ours Mm -hmm. Um, can I can I share with you something Sophie that the um, amazing um, uh, film director uh, Catherine Millard shared with me very, very early on. I was uh, staying at Baruna and she was there with me and we were talking about our obsessions. You know, because I think when you say to writers, what are you writing about? Sometimes we make up stuff we don't know. We're confused about our intentions and what we've actually done. But if you ask them what their obsessions are, right. get pretty close to what they're writing about. Yeah. And she said to me, she's so droll and dry and everything. And she said, I'm monogamous in my relationships, but not my obsessions. Mm-hmm. I always have the thing I'm obsessed with and then I have one coming up the rear. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Isn't it? And I just think, you know, something to do, something to think about, something to hope for, like those of us who are calibrated towards making and creating it's so important to you know I've I've got there's characters that are sort of there I can hear them twittering around even while we're talking for for future projects which is pretty weird isn't it do you when you have the characters twittering around like that do you actually document anything or do you just trust they're going to stay with you yeah no no I do I I yeah I I I wake up or I I'm, I'm a bit um like for want of another description I suppose it's been it's fairly well documented, the whole morning pages thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I like, um, I can't remember who said this. Uh, it might have been Tony Morrison. I read a quote recently that, you know, when you become a mother, you cease to be the protagonist in your own life. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I kind of habitually had to be up and writing before anyone said the word mum. Right, right. Because then that just took my whole identity. I had to be just me and not me um, at the same time. So writing really early in the morning has been a big habit of mine for many years. 
I'm it's I'm a morning person. I love to greet the dawn. I love the privacy of morning. Yeah. Um, what it allows me, um, yeah, the space. And I and I I I've been really lucky. I, I mentioned Varuna before, it's the writer's house in Katoomba. I've had numerous residencies there over the last kind of 10 years. And mm -hmm. I I always write in the same room. It's um, Eleanor Dark's uh, writing room out in the garden. And, you know, it's got a beautiful view of the garden. And depending on what time of year you're there, you get to see the apple blossoms and the azaleas and everything. And I get in there and I draw the curtains. And I turn the lights off and it's just the light of the computer because I am I just feel like I'm not in this world. I'm in the world of my characters. Right. Mm. Um now you've documented some of your process and I always love hearing about process and, and this podcast is partly about process. Um, I'm wondering, uh, now I'll get moved to the general questions portion of talking to you, which is do you have uh, a tip for anyone who wants to start writing and isn't sure how to begin? Yeah, I, um, I, it, it's you know, one of the most important um, things that anyone ever said to me is like just keep your bum in the seat. You know, just keep your bum in the seat, turn up and be, you know, really disciplined about it. You will be rewarded. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not a person who's ever counted words on the page. You know, it's, I, I was mentioning Varuna before, you'd come in at night and spend time with other writers and people would say, oh, you know, I did 3,000 words today and I'd think, oh, shit, I've bloody moved a full stop. That's all I've done. But in the thinking that's taken place, something's shifted something's moved and I might be just in my room doing all sorts of weird things um thinking about the characters and then I find my way kind of into the rhythm just going back to process for a second Sophie I just wanted to mention because when I have mentioned it before with other writers that I've mentored or had the pleasure of spending time with everybody tells me it's incredibly weird thing that I do. So right. it might be worth mentioning. Um, I write in different colours. Um, I understand a, that. Do you? I've got yeah. a colour coded. Um, I have. A, I don't write in different colours, but I have a colour coded grid, as I call it. It's a table in Microsoft Word. Yeah. So I understand. Oh, wow. That. Well, I just um, not in my notebooks. Everything's like black and white. So like. You know, just yeah. like the usual sort of crap. Yeah. But when it gets up onto the computer, the work has a feeling and the feeling has a colour. So if it's tepid, right. it might be yellow. I can't stand, I suppose, my most, the feelings and the things that I write about that I feel most uncertain about and anxious will usually be in yellow and green. Right. And things that I feel strongly about might be in red um, or dark blue. And the, the object is to get them all, to turn them into black. And my, right. when I hand it over to my beautiful publisher, um, who encourages me all the way along with all this wacky proclivities, um, they only ever hand over black stuff. And then I fight for every sentence, every space, every break. I'll fight for everything because I know the rainbow of thinking that it's gone through. Um, and I, I have a background in visual arts. I work as a stylist and designer. And I didn't realise I was doing an interview many years ago with Julianne Schultz, who's incredibly um, thoughtful in her reading. And she said to me, she asked me during an interview, oh, you know, I want to talk to you about the design of your writing. And I said, oh, I don't know what you mean. And she said, oh, yes. Like it's, and as we started talking about it, I thought, oh, God, she's absolutely right in terms of unconsciously I'm using the elements and principles of design. Right. Things have to be balanced. There's repetition. Mm -hmm. There's scale. There's. You know, and the way that I would approach decorating a room is kind of how I feel about a scene. Um, and I was really, un it was completely unconscious to me that I was doing that. But I can see very clearly now that that's, yeah, that's, that's a reflection of, again, like the contours of my thinking and my being mm. comes mm. out, as it does for all of us, doesn't it? It does. I'm stuck on yellow and green. I'm interested what happens. So when you colour <laughs> yellow or green... And when you go back to it, do you, is it, is it to question whether you really want to have it in or is it to, yeah, it to see how you can get it to black? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're the, probably the, the ideas that are sort of, that feel the most flimsy, um, mm -hmm. sometimes contrived, you know, like you're trying too hard. They don't feel organic. 
Um, and it's really funny, the things, there are, there are passages, there are whole, especially dialogue. Um, it's interesting when I look back at editing, working with, you know, wonderful editors, very little of the dialogue has ever changed. Right. Very little. And, and most of it comes out black. It's right. sort of not, it almost feels like it's not disputable for me. It just is what it is. Mm-hmm. And I think it's those joining pieces when you're trying to, when it comes to structure and all those things and you feel like things are too contrived or you, you're working on something too hard. And it's sort of like yellow is me being shy on the page or something. <laughs> like, I'm really not sure about this. It doesn't really deserve to be there. But if I've written something in black, I know you know my publisher well. She'll tell you I fight till the last little <laughs> comma and full stop to, yeah, to um, explain it and and its relevance and necessity in, in the book. Mm. So it's interesting because you have musicality in your life, you have design elements, you write. These are actually things that don't necessarily all go together because they're different aspects of the mind. Um, often people focus on one. I think either you know, you're, a, you're a visual yeah. um, or you're musical, whatever it is. So for you in terms of how you experience the world and how you tell your stories, do you feel like it's it's just a sense of harnessing everything at your disposal to, to pour, pour into a book or do you have other outlets for your Yeah, plenty practice? of other outlets. I have a, yeah, I have a design studio in Paddington. So I've worked as a stylist and a designer for the last 30 odd years in Europe and Australia. And I would argue that it's all about telling a story. And, you know, when I was 16 and, you know, unmarried mother and trying to make ends meet, I just it's too long a story but I ended up sort of doing this little makeup course and I was doing makeup started off there and and I just I was always trying to tell a story whether it was with someone's face um when I'm doing styling working in commercial or residential projects it was about articulating who my clients were Mm -hmm. in a three-dimensional sense it's always about telling a story and so writing feels really similar to me in that way that you've got, you're constrained by the page you've got you know the page to to be able to articulate who these characters are but it all feels very connected to me with the impetus of storytelling yeah that's mm-hmm. the link for me is that I yeah I, I wrote my first I thought it was a book I don't know it's probably just a pamphlet or some rubbish um, when I was four and it was a little story called The Naughty Girl and it was my first attempt at fiction. I've still got it. Um, Dad used to, Dad was a builder and he used to get the PGH Brickworks, um, you know, used to give him diaries every year and it's 1969. I've written in this diary this naughty N-O-R-T-Y girl story, which is pretty scary when I look back at it and think I had, I was perceiving things then about injustices and things that weren't being said around me and I was attempting to do them even right. at that age you know it's so weird isn't it so yeah I'm I think I'm a storyteller I'd agree with that and I also think you live a full spectrum life in that you look for the, the beauty and richness in all aspects of life so as I was saying visual musical whatever it is and that is present on the page because we feel like we enter a full spectrum world when we read your novel and I could have you talking for hours because you are such an interesting person to talk to, but I am going to have to wrap it up. I'm going to ask you one last question about music since this is a podcast. Now you do know a lot of musicians, you, you have a broad listening um, range, but I'm wondering if you have favorite artist or artists you'd like to share with us. A musical artist? Yes. Musical artist. Yes. Gosh, um, you don't have to pick one because it's oh, a tough. Yeah, question. gosh, that's really hard, isn't it? Well, maybe yeah. I should say instead, who are you listening to at the moment, or what are you listening to at the moment? Oh, what am I listening to at the moment? Um, gosh, oh, oh, I have to make a confession. I went and saw Harry Styles. I love that, Harry's house. You say that like it's a bad thing. That guy's no, on. No, I just honestly, Sophie, it was. You know, we, we've talked quite a bit about compassion and kindness and nuance and everything, and. I can't tell you how I've always had a little thing for him. I just love, you know, I totally big, understand. <laughs> and it's not a little thing, it's a big thing. I've got a big thing for Harry. And my daughter and I went to see him in Melbourne and we couldn't because we couldn't get tickets in Sydney. And it was just, we were there for the weekend and it felt as if the whole of the city was imbued with this mm-hmm. kindness. Um, yeah. there was a woman who was 70, same age as Leslie Bird, weirdly, 78 a grandmother on her own at the concert 
with her feather boa and she was rocking out the whole time and I just thought there's something that he emits that's mm -hmm. uh I don't know in being true to himself that's so authentic that it kind of encourages other people to to be so joyful and it just felt like a safe kind wonderful place and I've become obsessed with do you know um Zane Lowe no. Oh, so good. I'm so glad to bring him up. He does um, musical interviews on Apple. Um, he's got an amazing uh, background. Hang on. I did see him interview Taylor Swift. Yes. Okay. No, yes. Well, you have to jump on and watch the Harry ones because the actual, he talks to them deeply about the writing of the songs and the music and where they are and how it happens and where they are at this time in their life. So but I wasn't actually listening to Harry um, during the writing of the book. I was listening to a lot of Sarah McLaughlin, okay. London Grammar. Yeah. Um, Steve Balby, who's just someone I treasure as an amazing storyteller. Um, his voice moves me incredibly. His album, Black Rainbow, I listened to a lot writing this book. But Bach, which really surprised oh. me, The Fugues. Um, I, I stumbled upon a book uh, called Bach's Feet which is actually about the 280 mile, like just take that in for a second, 280 mile walk that he did from Lubeck to, I don't know where it was, This he was intrigued by this organ player and as part of his development, he thought he needed to get there and have a look at this organ and ended up in a big kerfuffle when he got there and it was formative to his life. But the book's very much about how he walked his, how as he walked his feet kind of, um, there was this rhythm in his walking and then later in his playing that was all connected. It was bodily. It was to do with the world, about being out in the world, mm -hmm. bringing the world in inside you. And I actually listen to a lot of orchestral music. I still do. Yeah. Um, and organ music, like if you haven't been to go and sit, if you're in Sydney and you want to go and have a beautiful lunchtime, you can sit up the back with your Vitaweets in your little plastic bag and listen to these organists. I just, it's so moving and it's so physical, the whole thing. So, yeah, I, ha I heard, it, did anyone come out on top? Not really. Um, I look, I, I think, again, full Renee Gaya, a big. I mean, as an ode to her passing recently, I've been listening to her a lot. Right. What a talent. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. But I think as your musical taste is full spectrum as well. And I really yeah. appreciate Catherine, you've brought so much joy and beauty to me in this conversation. Aww. Um, so I hope that everyone listening will go and and buy. I think she would have said herself and read it, borrow it from the library, whatever. It's a wonderful piece of work. Congratulations and thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Sophie. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Writing Books and Music podcast. If you'd like to know more about the writer you've just listened to, please go to the show notes.